Good morning, everyone. Um, Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of 1 Kings, um, and we're reading chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. 
The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Well, I've been uh, doing some thinking this year. Um, Even when I was on my leave, I was thinking about this topic. Um, The topic is um, why does it seem to be the case that faith doesn't seem to be sticking very well with young people in Australia? I've seen... A lot of people in my ministry life get baptised, convert to Christianity, but then only a small percentage of them uh, stay on in their faith. And even I've seen um, many adults who are Christians, who've been Christians their whole life, get into their 30s and 40s, and then faith lowers in their priorities. You know, they start questioning their faith. Um... They lose interest, make choices to deprioritize their their faith. And so why? Well, there's many reasons I've come up with that I've been thinking. I've been talking to lots of people, reading. But one of the big ones that keeps coming up time and time again is the problem of privilege. This is an old problem. goes back to Jesus. He said, you know, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Privilege means that we've got heaven on earth now. So many good things and experiences means that we don't have to rely on God as much. Every problem can be fixed with money. Privilege draws us to worship the idols of wealth and possessions and status. So we end up like the Israelites in the time of Amos. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. And what is the consequence for their privilege? Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. If you want to be a person who continues in your faith, I'm convinced that you have to counteract your privilege. Um, Now, don't make the mistake of looking around the room here this morning and thinking to yourself... um, Oh, I'm not as privileged as the other person over there in the, other, in the room. My house has got two bedrooms, their house has got four bedrooms, or my car was secondhand, their car was brand new. You know, you know, don't think like that. We are privileged in Melbourne. We're, I think it's a, is it the third top, second top, most livable city in the world. We've won the lottery. Even on a student's income, you can go out and have nice coffee, walk in nice parks, have the world's best health care and education the cleanest and most drinkable water in the world. What we have to do as privileged Christians then is something difficult, and that is we have to learn the seemingly impossible for a privileged person, which is we have to learn to truly rely on God and to learn obedience. And... Over the next five weeks, we're we're going to study the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and we're going to see with those prophets, especially as we start off with Elijah, how he learned to rely on God and he learned obedience. 
Elijah ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab in the 9th century BC. He's one of the most important prophets in the Bible. He gets mentioned about a hundred times. He links us to John the Baptist, even to Jesus. He appears at the transfiguration with Moses. His name means Yahweh is my God. He was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Uh, he was actually a wandering nomad, a sojourner, which in the world of the Bible puts him in a marginalized category with widows and fatherless children. And in 1 and 2 Kings, which I could call now the Book of Kings, because it's really one big book, it's filled with these stories of these prophets. There's so many prophets in, in, in the Book of Kings. There's actually more, more prophets than there are kings in the book. There's 11 mentioned by name, but there are many more who are left anonymous. And there are also other kinds of prophets, prophets of the idols of Baal and Asherah. So there's actually 1,416 prophets mentioned in the book of Kings. And they had three main uh, messages, mainly for the kings. They, they provided counsel for the kings. They talked about life and death, predictions about life and death, the weather and war. They, had, they, they gave out judgment against sin, injustice and violence, and they performed miracles and they anointed kings. So as we get into Elijah, we see this man, who's this prophet who, who learns obedience and what it means to truly depend on God. We see him performing this role of prophet. He goes to King Ahab and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. These were dangerous words. Queen Jezebel had ordered the execution of many prophets, prophets she didn't like, prophets who she didn't like what they said. So standing up in front of the king and saying this was a dangerous thing. Ahab and Jezebel worshipped Baal. They made Baal worship a, a national religion and they built a temple for him and uh, appointed priests. Ba Baal was the rider of the clouds, the god of rain and fertility, and he was the god of riches he promoted a kind of a materialistic religion. Uh, the king, king and queen, they were hedonists. So when the prophet stands forward and says, uh, the rain is going to go, he was actually undermining Baal's power. This drought would come and bring, put Israel into a time of struggle because their crops wouldn't grow. God was challenging their unbelief, their idolatry. It was judgment against the sin of the king and the sin of his people. And it was an attempt to get the king to repent. These were desperate times for Israel. 7,000 Israelites were worshipping Baal. And yet Yahweh is still alive. He is still their God. And... This story is quite a significant one. Both Jesus and his brother James mention it. And they say that um, this period, this drought that, uh, that uh, Elijah um, prophesied about lasted three and a half years. And through this time, while Israel struggled to find 
water and food, God provided for Elijah. Let me show you how he provided for Elijah. It's wild. It's crazy. God tells Elijah to travel east of the Jordan River and hide in the Kareth Ravine. He's to drink from a brook that's there and he's to be provided by, with food from some ravens who God would send and bring the food. It's so strange. So Elijah follows the instructions of God and the ravens did come and provide bread and meat in the evening. This is a great story of God's provision, but also strange. It's one of the few, there's about seven or eight weird animal stories in the Bible, you can look them up in your own time, where God uses animals miraculously. But this particular example is strange because ravens were unclean animals because they ate from the carcasses of rotting animals, dead animals. Uh, so they were a bit like magpies or crows who eat the, you know, the, the roadkill on the side of the road. So this begs the question, was the meat that the ravens brought for Elijah, was that just the rotting flesh of dead animals? Potentially that's the case. Um, we expect Elijah, a holy man, to reject unclean meat from unclean animals, but he obeys. God had told him to do it. God wanted Elijah to trust in his provision, and he did just that. He stayed by the brook for a while. This was alone time with God. Perhaps God was preparing him for his ministry as a prophet. This was time to pray and meditate in the presence of God. But then it says in verse 7 that the brook eventually dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So then we move in the chapter 17 to a story of a second provision, another strange story. The word of the Lord comes to him again in verse 9. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Zarephath was a region was at the, that was at the heartland of Baal worship. So it's like God sending him into the, the, the den of the wolves, you know. He's saying, go in there and I'm going to do something cool with you. The drought continued, but Baal did not provide any rain for the region. Only Elijah's God would pro provide. But this provision to Elijah was once again strange. What is God up to? We have to learn to trust God even when it seems like we don't know what's coming ahead. Sometimes he'll point you to strange places for good reasons. For Elijah, the purpose of this strange journey is hidden in the name of the town. This Gentile widow, widow lived in Zarephath, which means place of refining. So this experience with the widow and the ravens before would refine Elijah's faith. He had to trust God and depend on the poor widow who had nothing to offer. Last Friday, I... I played a gig in Sydney Road at the Brunswick Ballroom. And as I was walking to the gig, I walked past this rough sleeper, a man sitting on the, on the side of the footpath. His name was Steve from Wellington, a Maori man. He's sitting there and he'd come to Melbourne to bury his mother and he's now stuck in Melbourne. He can't get home because he hasn't got any money. 
And we sat and talked for a while and I gave him some money so that he could buy some soap and get into his accommodation. Um, and here I was, you know, on my way to the gig where they are going to provide free drinks for the band and here I was in my nice car standing there with Steve from Wellington, rough sleeper. Imagine if God had have said to me, Peter, go up to Steve from Wellington. He'll be rough sleeping on Sydney Road and he's going to provide for you. It doesn't make any sense. This is what it was like for him to say to Elijah, go to a widow. They were at the bottom of the social pile. She had no way of earning money. She also had to provide for her son during a famine. She would have thought that Elijah was coming to provide for them. This is what a good Jew would normally do. This is what the law said to do. But Elijah asked for water. And he even went further and asked for bread as well. And she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She was so low and hungry and depressed. She wanted to die. Now, what I'm about to say is not the point of the passage, but it's something I noticed which is, I think, really genius of God, which is that what he does with Elijah and the widow actually gives life to the widow. It gives her purpose. This is how good development works. You, you don't just hand out money, but you empower people um, to lift themselves up. I met some women in the slums of Bang Bangladesh who received small loans, microfinance of about $100, to start their own businesses. And what that did was it empowered them, gave them a sense of purpose. They had a smile on their face and a reason to live. Perhaps God isn't being so weird after all, asking Elijah to ask this widow who wants to die to serve him. Anyway, God knows what he's doing. What Elijah uh, was about to say to her, you know, give me bread, sounds demanding, but it's not. It's coming from a place of kindness. He says in verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have, you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. And she did all this and God did provide. This was just like the feeding of the 5,000 but stretched out over a long period. God provided abundantly. Elijah gave this woman a chance to trust God like he had been doing and to watch God come through. But it would involve serious risk, not just for herself but for her son as well. Learning to rely on God is one major theme of this passage, but obedience is the other. Because the kings of Israel, they do not rely on God. They do not obey God. But the ravens, the widow, and Elijah do. And they experience his blessing, and King Ahab and, his, and the Israelites do not. 
Yahweh provides, Baal does nothing. So I ask you in your privilege, who are you going to be like? Will you ignore God and rely on your wealth and your idols like the privileged and wealthy kings of Israel? If that is where your life is heading and you're trying to be a Christian, I guarantee you, you're going to struggle. Your faith is in danger. Alternatively, you could choose a life of humility and obedience on God like Elijah and the widow. Following Jesus requires a foolish obedience to God. You'll appear so strange, doing weird things, relying on ravens, going to widows. You'll be doing strange things. People will think you're a weirdo. You'll have to offer up your privilege. This is the rule of discipleship that I think I'm coming to. And apparently this was talked about in the, um, the Women in Academia conference yesterday, so, but I wasn't there. I didn't qualify. Um, and this is the rule of discipleship I think I've come to, which is that privileged Christians have no legitimate option other than to offer up their privilege as a sacrifice for God's kingdom. As Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So if you had a first-class education, positioning you for an excellent career, use that fine education to be a labourer in God's harvest. You have money, give it to the poor, give it to ministry, give it to mission. Be radically generous with the privilege you have been given. You have social power and influence and status in your work, use it to influence for kingdom justice and kingdom good. Um, one of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century, John Stott, uh, English Anglican minister, theologian and elder statesman of the church, he grew up in upper middle class England, went to rugby school, um, elite private school, he was in boarding school there, and uh, his father was the head of the Royal College of Surgeons during World War II. So he's, you know, pretty up there in English society. He studied at Cambridge. And the author, Mark Labberton, wrote about John Stott. He said, It was a world of privilege of elite, of private boarding school education from eight years of age. It was a world of manners, social place, and intellectual achievement. But when he was 17, he heard a preacher, uh, an evangelist who came to his school and, um, and taught, taught about Jesus and John Stott gave his life to Christ. And he took that education, that privileged education and position in society and used it to, not to exercise political power, not to go into politics or business, leadership like so many others of his generation at rugby school did, but he went to be a church leader, a, pre a preacher and to train up leaders in the majority world. Stott sacrificed his privilege for the kingdom. He learned to rely on, on God in ways that he would, never would have had to as a privileged person. He learned obedience in ways he never had to. On Thursday, um, I bumped into an old uh, person, a friend who was in the youth group that I used to be involved with at St. Hilary's. His name was Jack. And he, Jack grew up in one of the biggest, fanciest houses in uh, the church, in in Baldwin, I think it was, and, uh, you know, had tennis court and all of that. And he went to a big private school. 
and he studied and got a, to be accountant and doing very well. Um, and Jack is one of those kids that went through the youth ministry who w could have been in danger of letting his privilege overtake him and becoming flaky in his faith and walking away. But in actual fact, Jack is a person who sacrificed his privilege for the kingdom. He used all of that stuff, the blessing that God had given him, and he turned it around and redirected it so that he could serve God with everything that he has. So he, him and his wife moved out to the outer suburbs, out of, eastern, out of northern suburbs, to be part of a church plant out in Craigieburn. And uh, I think it's further past Craigieburn. Um, and he's studying Bible college and he's thinking about whether he should get ordained. He's using all that good stuff that God has given him to serve the kingdom. Christians in privileged Western contexts like ours have to open our eyes to God's expectations on our life. Much is expected, says Jesus. And what is this to do with the Elijah story? As a privileged person, your only choice is not to go the idolatrous and materialistic way of King Ahab, but you will be tempted you can go the godly way of Elijah and the widow who trusted in God, who put their whole life in his hands. And through this trial, their faith was strengthened. The thing about radical obedience and a life of sacrifice is that God may lead you to hard places. You'll be drawn in as God's human representative in other people's suffering. And you'll have a new privilege, the privilege of ministry. This is what happened to Elijah. Now, Elijah stayed with the widow for a while, and then tragedy struck. The widow's son started getting sick, and then he stopped breathing, and, and then he died. And then the widow became angry and blamed Elijah. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Why didn't Elijah prevent his death? So Elijah blamed God. You have brought tragedy on the poor widow. And then it says, Elijah went to bring, bring, raise, raise, raise some of the boy from the dead. And he prayed to God. And he asked God to, to heal him and to raise him. And then it says, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The way Elijah prays for this boy is confronting. He, he stretches out his body on this corpse, on this dead boy, three times. I've stood next to dead bodies quite a few times and I've never had that impulse. I've never thought to do that. I've never thought even to pray that they would rise from the dead, let alone lie my body across. If you touch a corpse, the law says in Hebrew law that you're temporarily unclean. But what does Elijah care? He doesn't care. He's the guy who gets fed by ravens. You know, <laughs> he was like Jesus who wasn't afraid to get up close and personal with unclean people. Yahweh heard Elijah's plea. The boy came back to life and he was immediately reunited with his mother. As the prophet exclaimed, look, your son is alive. Even though God miraculously provided her with food through the ministry of Elijah, it's when the widow received her son back that she declared she knew him as a man of God and that his words were true, it says in verse 24. 
Elijah prayed for a resurrection and it occurred. Now, you know, readers of the Bible go, oh, yeah, resurrection. Yeah, we know about resurrections. They happen all the time. No, they don't. This is the first time in the Bible it happens. Elisha would go on and raise two more people because Elisha's like doubly good and we'll find out about why. And Jesus raised three people, not to mention himself. The point of Elijah's prayer, and this is to finish up, is not that we should think that if we have just enough faith, we can raise people from the dead. I don't think that that's what it's about. Because anyway, the point is, even if we could do that, the person would still go on and die because death is a reality. What we see here is Elijah showing himself as the anticipation of Jesus who raises the dead to life. Elijah stretched out over the boy and transferred his cleanness into the boy's unclean state. But Jesus stretched out his arms and transferred his righteousness from his perfect sinless self into our sinless, sinful selves. He absorbed our, our, our deathly sin and gave us eternal life. When the widow's son came back to life, she put her faith in Elijah. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And in the same way, if you realize the reality and the glory of Jesus' resurrection, you will not be able to help but put your faith in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray for us in our privilege that as we look at this story of Elijah and his dependence on you, um, his obedience of you, that we can be challenged. And we can be challenged to sacrifice our privilege for the kingdom. We pray for our faith that we will keep running the race. And not only that, but bring you glory. We pray that as we continue through these stories of Elijah and Elisha, that you will encourage us and inspire us by their, their, bold, their bold trust in you and the way that they stood up against the idolatrous kings of the time. Amen.